Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 203, Settling into Stalemate. Now, first, I want to thank our newest patron, Mark Lemke. Big thank you to Mark for supporting the show. And I've got a bit of an announcement. Uh, lots going on here, but one of many is that my wife and I are having a baby girl this July. Uh, I've been trying to ensure I'm about three or four episodes ahead, which I'm going to be honest, I've never been that far ahead in the 10 years I've been doing this podcast. But I worked a lot over Christmas, and I'm trying to build a nice buffer to make sure that even when, you know, sleepless nights, new baby, everything, uh, this summer that I am still putting out episodes and, you know, getting the two episodes a month that you all expect and deserve. So going to be doing my best, but you know, bear with me. If you hear any crying in the background, I'll you know, hopefully be able to get all that out, but we will see. It's a new adventure. So just wanted to let you all know that. And with that noted, let's get into it. Now, last time, we were looking at how the Romanian and Serbian governments were cracking down on Bulgarians living in southern Dobroja and Macedonia, often resulting in outright bloodshed. Within Bulgaria, with the help of a little classic electoral manipulation, Radoslavov and his liberal coalition have finally obtained the majority they need to govern. But it's also more clear than ever that the agrarians are truly the second political power in the country. Then, the assassination of the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne triggered war between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, and soon afterwards the outbreak of the First World War. Bulgaria and its neighbors all quickly declared neutrality, while also laying the groundwork for intervening should the right opportunity arise. In the early weeks, the central powers saw a loss when the Austro-Hungarian invasion of Serbia was defeated. However, the Germans are having no trouble plowing through Belgium. Today, we pick up in August of 1914. In the middle of the month, the Germans have just won a major victory against the Russians at Tannenberg, swiftly pushing the tide of the war in favor of the Central Powers, as it's now clear that the Germans are focused on quickly defeating France, and thus the only real possibility of a quick Entente victory seems to come from the possibility of a Russian invasion of Germany from the east. But with the catastrophic loss at Tannenberg, that idea seems pretty far-fetched, and so there's no clear way the Entente can win in the short term. Now, in September, the push by the Central Powers to convince Bulgaria to join the war on their side really starts to pick up steam. While Ferdinand had been playing coy and avoiding the Austrian ambassador's attempts to meet him, the Duke of Mecklenburg arrived in Sofia acting as a personal representative of the Kaiser. But the Bulgarian government remained resolute in its commitment to neutrality at this stage. Now, from the start, it was clear that the price for Bulgarians entering the war was Macedonia. And from the start, it was crystal clear that Serbia was not willing to give up any part of Macedonia under any circumstances. Thus, despite all the back and forth, it honestly feels like the ultimate outcome was never really in question. The central powers could offer Bulgaria Macedonia, the Entente could not. Sure, there was talk about 
forcing Serbia to hand over the portion of Macedonia it had promised to Bulgaria in 1912, but Paris and London weren't really willing to force the issue on their ally. Now, sure, there was talk about giving Bulgaria eastern Thrace, the territory the Ottomans had just retaken, but the idea that the Bulgarian government was going to war not for Macedonia, but for the that territory in eastern Thrace was honestly kind of unthinkable. Well, at least it was for some, because September also saw opposition parties in the National Assembly release a statement urging the government to begin negotiations with the Entente. So for now, it seems like the opposition is in favor of siding with the Entente, though it's not totally clear what they think Bulgaria will get out of that. Now, also in September, representatives from the UK arrived in Sofia to negotiate with these opposition groups about Bulgaria potentially joining the war on the Entente side. The demand for Bulgarian leaders like Ivan Geshov was essentially the undoing of the Treaty of Bucharest, i.e. returning Bulgaria to the borders established in the Treaty of London, including handing over Macedonia. But again, Serbia in particular would not accept this. Still, Geshov in particular tried to build public support for this in the Entente powers by distributing translated copies of his book about the creation of the Balkan League, showing how the treaties and agreements were broken, and making a moral case for revising Bulgaria's borders. He also argued that the Bulgarian people and government could not be held responsible for the Second Balkan War because it was what he termed a reckless series of kind of reckless elements which had caused that calamity. But whether Geshov and his political allies could successfully convince the people and governments of Russia, France, and Great Britain of that, well, that's another matter entirely. Meanwhile, weeks after being pushed out of Serbia, Austria-Hungary mounted yet another invasion in September. This time, attacking, instead of just attacking from the north, rather, it came from the west, using Bosnia and Herzegovina as a jumping-off point for the Austrians crossing the Drina River into Serbia. The initial attack was repelled before another attempt successfully created a bridgehead over the river. Soon, however, fighting settled into trench warfare that was highly unfavorable to the Serbs because of their inferior artillery and depleted ammunition stocks after the Balkan Wars. At the same time, however, the Serbs launched their own attacks into Bosnia with the helps of Chetniks. Their Entente allies wanted Serbia to attack in order to draw off as many Austro-Hungarian forces as possible, but frankly, that didn't really change the reality that Serbia possessed little offensive capabilities. Thus, by late September, the Austro-Hungarians had managed to get a small foothold in Serbia, but fighting had bogged down into a stalemate. Ironically, the same thing was happening in France, where Germany's lightning advance through Belgium was finally halted at the First Battle of the Marne. As a result, both in Serbia and France, September saw advances come to a stop and trenches begin to be built. While no one knew it at the time, those trenches would soon transform a war of movement into one of stalemate. In a way, this was good for Bulgaria, because the longer the war dragged on, the more valuable Bulgaria's potential intervention would become. In October, Bulgaria's value jumped yet higher when the Ottoman fleet raided the Russian Black Sea fleet. As a result, Russia declared war on the Ottoman Empire, followed by Serbia the next day. The Ottomans were now officially in the war on the side of the Central Powers. Soon, the Sultan himself even declared a jihad 
attempting to use his position as caliph of all Muslims to call on all the Muslims of the world to fight the Entente together. In particular, he hoped the hundreds, thousands of Muslim soldiers who fought for France in the UK as colonial subjects, as well as the many millions of Muslims in Central Asia living under Russian rule, as well as in places like India, would all rise up against their colonial masters, but none of this really panned out. In any case, the Ottoman entry into the war meant that Bulgaria now became a vital land route through which the Germans could funnel troops and supplies to the Ottomans when needed. Granted, establishing this land bridge would require defeating Serbia, but if Bulgaria joined, Serbia's defeat seemed like a foregone conclusion because, of course, it would open up a huge second front. Still, for now, the Bulgarians remained committed to neutrality. But that doesn't mean all Bulgarians were so committed. Despite taking serious losses in the Ohre Debar uprising just a year earlier, the Viamaro was still looking for ways to resist Serbian occupation in Macedonia. Throughout the fall of 1914, they conducted a series of sabotage attacks on the niche Thessaloniki railway line in an attempt to hamper the moving of Entente supplies north to help the beleaguered Serbian army. In November, the Austro-Hungarians launched yet another attack on Serbia, the third attempt at invading the country in as many months. The picture, or the pressure rather, was really mounting as Serbia's continued resistance made it both impossible to send supplies to the Ottomans and strongly discouraged neutral states like Romania, Greece, and crucially Bulgaria from considering joining the Central Powers. And none of that is to even mention how overall embarrassing the whole thing was for Vienna. Because, well, remember, most people assumed at the beginning of this war that the Austro-Hungarian army would just sweep over the Serbs. But this time, the attack went differently. Once again, the Austro-Hungarians attacked from Bosnia, but managed to push the exhausted, outnumbered, and low-on-ammunition Serbs back. The Austro-Hungarians had to advance cautiously to avoid outrunning their supplies, but once they brought their heavy artillery across the Drina River, they began to pummel the Serbs. Facing brutal artillery bombardments and suffering from a lack of winter clothing and supplies, morale plummeted amongst the Serbian army, which began to retreat, destroying infrastructure and communications as they went. Now, unfortunately for them, however, this meant abandoning much of the heavy equipment the Serbs still had, further increasing the artillery gap between Serbia and Austria-Hungary. Serbia begged its allies for weapons and supplies, but none were sent. Soon, Belgrade was abandoned and the Austro-Hungarians entered the city on November 18th, though the city would be retaken about two weeks later after the Serbs counterattacked overstretched Austro-Hungarian forces. Now, at this point, the Austro-Hungarians decided to abandon their third invasion and actually retreat back across the Drina, which meant that as 1914 neared its end, three separate invasions of Serbia had failed and Austria-Hungary was looking like they were the sick man of Europe. The Austro-Hungarian commander was now replaced as the empire paused to review its strategy. The Serbs responded to their victory by adopting the Niche Declaration, which announced their intention to annex Slavic lands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in order to build a South Slavic state. That declaration stated, quote, 
convinced that the entire Serbian nation is determined to persevere in the holy struggle for the defense of their homesteads and their freedom, the government of the Kingdom of Serbia considers that, in these fateful times, its main and only task is to ensure the successful completion of this great warfare which, at the moment when it started, also became a struggle for the liberation and unification of all our unliberated Serbian, Croatian, and Slovenian brothers. The great success which is to crown this warfare will make up for the extremely bloody sacrifices which this generation of Serbs is making. End quote. So, Serbia is making it clear that its intentions are both to never give up Macedonia, but also to expand dramatically to the north all the way to Slovenia. Now that said, for now, Serbia's allies weren't really willing to endorse this plan, so it's just a Serbian thing. But it did make what Serbia wanted at the conclusion of the war crystal clear. So, as 1914 comes to an end, the First World War is indeed stuck in a stalemate. The Germans have pushed deep into France, only to be stopped as the Western Front degenerated into trench warfare. A major German victory against the Russians at Tannenberg meant that the Russian invasion of Germany was halted. But not that victory there seemed likely anytime soon for either side. The Austro-Hungarians have failed to conquer Serbia three times, and the Ottomans have entered the war determined to expand their influence in the Balkans and the Caucasus. As I said, nearly all these events made the value of Bulgaria as a potential ally increase yet further. The harder it was to subdue Serbia, the more valuable it became to open up a second front. The entrance of the Ottomans meant that a supply line through Bulgaria became a major prize. Despite the losses of the Second Balkan War, it was clear to everyone that Bulgaria's army was still a very formidable force that could make a real difference on the battlefield. But for Sofia, it all still rested on which side could realistically promise and, well, to get Macedonia essentially, and while the country undoubtedly leaned towards the central power, still nothing was set in stone. In fact, on the second to last day of 1914, Foreign Minister Nikola Gennadiev returned to Sofia to give a report to the cabinet, insisting Bulgaria must join the Entente. But the cabinet remained unconvinced, and the foreign minister was actually fired on corruption charges a few months later, eliminating one of the few supporters of the Entente from senior government. Now, the last thing to mention before finishing 1914 is the Carnegie Report, aka the report of the International Commission to inquire into the causes and conduct of the Balkan Wars. Published by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, which, you know, basically founded as a philanthropic organization by Andrew Carnegie, who was a, a you know, American railroad tycoon, super rich guy. This report was compiled by a group of professors, politicians, historians, and journalists from the United States, Russia, France, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the UK, including three Nobel Prize winners. The commission had spent five weeks in the region collecting first-hand accounts and information before compiling the report. The report documented war crimes committed during the Balkan Wars and would go on to help define how many later historians viewed the wars, though its release just before the outbreak of the First World War meant that current events overshadowed it a bit for the time being. The report confirmed many instances of nationalistic violence on all sides, though, as Ilchef writes, it, quote, 
convincingly showed that the conduct of Bulgarian troops was relatively the most humane one in comparison with the other participants of the war, end quote. In particular, letters from Greek soldiers made it clear that they had been ordered to burn Bulgarian villages and massacre their populations. The commission also noted the dehumanizing propaganda the Greeks used against the Bulgarians, writing of, quote, a gaudily covered print which was seen on the streets of Salonika and Piraeus, eagerly brought by the Greek soldiers returning to their homes, which revealed the depth of the brutality to which this race hatred had sunk them. It showed a Greek Evzone holding a living Bulgarian soldier with both hands while he gnaws at the face of the victim with his teeth like some beast of prey. It is entitled Bulgarophagos, Bulgar Eater, and is adorned with the following verses. The sea of fire which boils in my breast and calls for vengeance with the savage waves of my soul will be quenched when the monsters of Sofia are still and their lifeblood extinguishes my hate. Another popular battle picture showed a Greek soldier gouging out the eyes of a living Bulgarian, end quote. So all those are direct quotes from the report itself. Now, interestingly, this report is still thought of very well by historians. It's considered very well done, well documented, thorough, and relatively unbiased. And if you're curious, the whole thing is available for free online. You can find it very easily. So. Over time, that's going to kind of shape how people view and you know give a little bit more sympathy to the Bulgarians in this war, but that's a bit into the future. Now, all this brings us to 1915. January saw Bulgaria open up its first diplomatic embassy in the Western Hemisphere in Washington, D.C. That month also saw the screening of the first ever Bulgarian film. It lasted about 10 minutes and was titled A Bulgarian is Gallant. But still, the big news of the month wasn't cultural or diplomatic. It came on January 31st when actors from Bulgaria's National Theater were holding a charity carnival in the city's casino, which is now the small city art gallery that's in the same park as the National Theater, uh, the Van Vazov National Theater. It's a nice little art gallery if you ever are in Sofia to check out. But anyway, so... You know, a charity carnival is happening there when around one in the morning, an explosion ripped through the building, killing four, including the Minister of Defense's daughter and several military officers. An additional eight people were also injured. Now, honestly, I did a bunch of digging in English and Bulgarian. I couldn't find a ton of information, but what I could gather is that this attack was carried out by a group of anarchists called the Red Brothers, who many linked to the Young Turks currently in charge of the Ottoman Empire, though it's a little confusing why that would be the case. Now, ostensibly the reason for the attack is to push Bulgaria away from the Entente, but how this achieves that, I have no idea. But in any case, it seems that prosecutors tried to link the attack to the People's Liberal Party of Ivan Geshov through his connection, though, or though this connection wasn't proved and several Bulgarians were later found guilty and imprisoned before the Ottoman connection became known later in 1915. Now, honestly, I found this kind of confusing and weird. And frankly, if any of you listeners know more about this, let me know because it's just a, a weird event. But otherwise, early February saw the beginning of naval operations in preparations for an attack on the Ottomans at Gallipoli. Famously, this plan was pushed by Winston Churchill as First Lord of the Admiralty and was envisioned as a way to quickly knock the Ottomans out of the war and allow shipments through the Dardanelles to Russia. The Russians, for their part, also envisioned attacking the Straits from the Black Seaside. 
Now, the news that such an attack was underway alone had a massive effect. Greece, still technically neutral, signaled a willingness to contribute troops. Italy, previously an ally of the Central Powers, though for now still neutral, seemed much more willing to join the Entente at this news as well. Even Bulgaria responded by breaking off negotiations with Germany about potentially joining the Central Powers. So, all that is to say, everyone seemed quite optimistic about the success of this attack. So, yeah, everyone thought this would be successful and would have a massive impact on the war in southeastern Europe, but for now, the operation is still limited to naval actions, with the Russians shelling the entrance to the Dardanelles from the Black Sea in March. But, by this point, bombardments of the Royal Navy and some British landings have had little effect. And soon, a major British flotilla attempts to storm the Straits, only to turn back after losing several major warships to mines. After this failure, it was agreed that significant landings of troops would be necessary to clear the coastal batteries in order to allow ships to advance through the Straits all the way to Constantinople, which would then force the Ottomans out of the war. So, while many countries are still optimistic the Entente could do this, could force the Ottomans out of the war, the realities on the ground are showing that this is probably going to be harder than most imagine. Otherwise, March saw the Viamaro resume attacks on Serb forces in southeastern Macedonia, aimed at cutting that vital rail line to Thessaloniki, which again was the only way for Serbia to really receive any supplies from the outside world at this point. Ironically, the VMRO coordinated with Turks in the region who also resented the Serbian and Greek governments and wished to strike against them. Now, while this began as a mere rail attack, it actually quickly escalated into basically a small uprising as hundreds of Bulgarian and Turkish rebels took over the town of Valandovo, where they were warmly greeted with Bulgarian flags. However, knowing they couldn't actually hold the town against a full Serb counterattack, the fighters withdrew the next evening, leaving the local population to face a terror campaign, which resulted in over 6,000 civilians fleeing across the border to safety in Bulgaria. Now, the Serbian government blamed the Bulgarian government for this action, and the Bulgarians responded by blaming the Serbian government for provoking such actions through their brutal you know, rule in Macedonia, as well as their suppression of Bulgarian identities. But whoever you blame, pro-Bulgarian actions by the VMRO are once again resulting in a heavy price being paid by civilians. But of course, the VMRO weren't the only Macedonian revolutionary still active. After finally being pardoned, Jan Sendansky was now traveling with greater ease, brushing off concerns that there were still a lot of people who wanted him dead because they disagreed with his left-wing politics and as you know, you know, he's made a lot of controversial political decisions over the last few years. For example, his decision to work with the Young Turks and his general support for the idea of a distinct Macedonian nation separate from the Bulgarian one. And well, that is what happened on April the 14th. Sindansky was traveling to Nevrokop, which is modern Gotsedelchev, when he was ambushed by seven men with rifles and killed on the road. Now, supporters of Sandansky blamed Tsar Ferdinand, Todor Alexandrov, and the broader white right wing of the VMRO, which Todor Alexandrov led at this point. And eventually, seven men connected with the VMRO were indeed arrested and put on trial in Gornodjumaya, modern Blagovgrad. 
They claimed to have been instructed to murder Sandansky by Alexandrov and referred to Sandansky as a quote-unquote Turkish spy. Now, ultimately, all seven men were acquitted due to a lack of evidence, but there's speculation that the government, or even Tsar Ferdinand personally, worked to ensure this outcome, as the right wing of the VMRO and Todor Alexandrov were working quite closely with the government at this time. Now, taking a step back today, Sandansky remains a very controversial figure. Like many of his contemporaries, his legacy is viewed differently in Bulgaria and Macedonia. He's mentioned in North Macedonia's national anthem, but also has a town named after him in Bulgaria by the communist government in 1949. Generally, your opinion of him is probably going to rest on your politics and whether you agree with his support for an independent Macedonia. But in any case, yet another of the major figures of the sort of Bulgarian Macedonian movement is dead. But the difference is that Sandansky was a singular figure of the left-wing movement at this time, meaning compared even to many of the previous leaders of the Macedonian movement, the death of Sandansky had a massive impact on weakening the faction that he was basically just the, the kind of main figure of. And with that, I'm going to end this episode. It's in the early months of 1915, and the First World War has only increased in brutality and scope as fighting rages across the world. Germany has begun unrestricted submarine warfare in the Atlantic. The Germans have marked the first use of chemical weapons in war. And as spring of 1915 starts to turn to summer, both sides are increasingly turning to Bulgaria, determined to offer Sofia a package enticing enough to bring Bulgaria in the war on their side. Next time, we'll dive into what's known as the Bulgarian summer, that long summer of courtship in 1915, as the process kicks off and Bulgaria is forced to ask itself what entering another war, the third war in as many years, might be worth. This episode was produced and written by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can find images, maps, list of major characters, timelines, list of sources, all that kind of stuff on the podcast episode or the po- on the blog post rather linked in the episode description. So check that out and I will see you in the next one.